Welcome to High Cheese. It's Friday, June 30th, 2023, the last day of June, and the year is halfway over. And we've got to be happy today. We've got to be happy with the Supreme Court and the decisions that came out this week because it was an absolute gut punch to the Democrat Bolshevik Party here in the United States. And they did the right thing. It's Constitution. Everything that they did followed the Constitution. But just as important, it is a gut punch to the Democratic Party and their ability to win in 2024. Now, what these decisions that came out, affirmative action, student loans, the Colorado website designer, and the United States Postal Service worker really punched them right in the nose. And we should be happy for this because this is a battle that's going to take place next year that's going to save our country. And this is what happens when the Supreme Court does the right thing, follows the Constitution, and in turn punches our enemies right in the nose. Because what these decisions did today, and I'll get into the decisions in more detail in a little bit, but what these decisions did is take away the cornerstones of these American Bolsheviks and the power that they wanted to use in the upcoming election. And the first one, it has to do with race. Like the Bolsheviks, like the communists, like the globalists, they wanted to keep the races fighting with each other. And this affirmative action decision really takes that away. Because what happens when you have the races fighting with each other? You've got chaos. And what these Bolsheviks look to do is to come in, side with one or two of the races that they think will help them win at the expense of the other races. And I think we saw that going on today over the past several years. What these Democrats have been trying to do is they've been trying to pit white people against non-white people, and it hasn't been working. But now we've got the Supreme Court codifying the fact that this ain't going to work. We're all Americans. We're not different races. We shouldn't be fighting with each other. And let me tell you something. It's them and the media that are conjuring up all these racial problems in this country. But this Supreme Court decision took this away from the Democrats. And what it also did, it took the wind out of the sails of all these operatives, the media, left-wing Democrats that were trying to use race as a wedge for their own political benefit at the expense of the American people. Second thing they did with student loans. Now, the Democrats were really, really hoping that there would be a big turnout of younger people, students. And this decision was another gut punch to the Democrats because this was a cornerstone of Biden's campaign. Yes, we're going, we're going to forgive all your loans. And the students came out, yeah, we like that. We're going to vote for you. And they came out for Biden. Well, that may not happen now. Because now you have students out there saying, what the heck am I voting for this guy? He couldn't come through for me. And this is what the Democrat Bolshevik Party is all about. It's all about bribing your voter. They sit there in these Democrat think tanks, hey, who, who should we target? Who should we essentially bribe in order to get their vote? And this was a big bribe. Nearly a half a trillion dollars Biden wanted to just forgive. We've got $32 trillion in debt. And just by that one executive order, he wanted to add nearly a half a trillion dollars to that. And it was all politics. It was a bribe. And that's what the Democrats love to do. They love to bribe certain elements of society for their vote. So now in 2024, you've got students that 
I'm going to say, well, wait a second. This guy did nothing for me. I'm just going to sit this one out. Now, Biden's support has already been softening with uh, younger people. And there's been a number of polls out there that show us this. And that's a good thing in 2024 for us. And the third thing is religion. Bolsheviks, the Democrat left, the globalists cannot have religion. They cannot tolerate religion and move their agenda ahead. And these two decisions that came out regarding the postal service worker and the Christian website designer really help fortify religious rights. And did I say the Democrats and the globalists and the Bolsheviks, they can't tolerate religion. They can't tolerate the family. Well, the Supreme Court today came out and said, nope, can't go after religions. People have religious rights. And this is going, all of these decisions are going to run deep. And I'll get into the uh, detail later. But this is where we are today. Like I said before, it's constitutional, but it's also a gut punch to our enemies politically. And we should be happy for that. All right, let's take a look at the affirmative action ruling. And Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, they were sued by Asian-American students uh, over their admission policy. And Asian-Americans, as well as African-Americans, are considered uh, a preferred class when uh, Harvard and uh, North Carolina brought in their students or accepted their students. Well, what was happening is that Asian students... They, score, they were scoring so well on these entrance exams, SATs, that they should have been a lock for admissions. But it wasn't the case. It was the case that Harvard and North Carolina, oh, well, they wanted more African-American. They wanted more black students. So what they did is they disregarded the fact that Asian students scored very well and are minorities, according to affirmative action laws. But they looked the other way because they wanted more African-American students. And it got to the point where Asian students were given demerits by the admission staffs at these schools in order to bring in more African-American students. And look, I I just want to point something out. So I was watching The War Room today, and uh, Bannon had on a guest, Rainer Jackson, African-American. He pointed out something very relevant to affirmative action laws. When affirmative action laws first came out, The assumption was that both the minority and non-minority person had equal qualifications. And under those circumstances, you couldn't discriminate against the minority. But what we have today is simply emissions being based on just their race, not on their qualifications. And it got to the point where Asian Americans who score very well on tests, who are very well qualified to get into these schools, were being discriminated against because Harvard and North Carolina wanted more black students. That's not affirmative action. So they sued, and the rest is history. And I want to read a little from Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion on this decision. And and in it, he describes Harvard's and North Carolina's affirmative action policies as rudderless race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. He goes on to say, even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals 
were not the sum of their skin color. While I'm painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffered discrimination, he added, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. And I concur with Thomas. We cannot have a colorblind society as long as we have preferred races in our laws. And that's what affirmative action gave us. They gave us a list of preferred races that are going to be given preferences for jobs, for schools, and it's just become perverted over the years because we wind up discriminating against other people, in this case the Asians, which I find ironic because Asians are part of the preferred list. But again, we cannot have an equal society when any race is designated preferred. So where do we go from here? This decision should be helpful to open the door to go against other unconstitutional race preference laws. Like, for example, in New Jersey, I think it was one or two years ago, they passed a law that said that this preferred list of people, minorities, women, shall not be discriminated against regarding pay. And I remember meeting with one of the attorneys that were talking about this new law that was coming out. And they essentially said, well, you know, these, these list of people, these, this preferred list of people, they can sue if they're not being paid an equal amount of money as a non-minority is, white person. And I asked the attorney a question, and I said, well, wait a second. If there's a white person that is being paid less than a minority and they have the same qualifications and the same position... They can't sue? And his answer was no. It only goes one way. And this is the problem with what these affirmative actionists have morphed into. You can't solve discrimination by discriminating against other people. Now, this, as well as the two religious cases, also opened the door for there to be some pushback on these uh, ESG programs and DEI programs that are running through corporate America. Equity, social justice, and governance. And quite frankly, there's a lot of employees that find these programs that are being pushed on them as offensive from a religious standpoint, from a race standpoint, from an equality standpoint. So this law now, or this decision by the Supreme Court, now opens the door for some pushback on this. Again, it's not just this, it's also the uh, religious cases too that uh, I'll talk about in a few minutes. But this does open the door for pushback on ESG DEI that are running amok in some of these corporations. All right, let's take a look at the student loan decision. And essentially what the uh, court said is that the president does not have the, the authority to forgive such a massive amount of money for students. And only Congress can do that. And Biden went beyond what his authority is as a president when he tried to forgive these student loans. And there's so much wrong with this forgiveness program from a moral standpoint, from a fairness standpoint for those people that decided not to go to college, but they have to wind up paying for someone else's college because they didn't feel that they wanted to pay 
their student loan off. And then you had the thresholds. People, uh, couples making $250,000 or less were going to have some of their student loan waived or forgiven. If you're making $250,000, you should be able to pay off a student loan. There's ways of paying for it. And I just saw the statement that Biden made today about the student loan decision. And it's, it's funny. He, he's just a political hack. His answer was, well, we're going to try to do a workaround on this that we can provide student loan relief. Stay with me on this, but it's going to take time. And you know that he's trying to wedge this into the campaign. So it's going to take time. We're going to try to do it again, but it's going to take time. And, and that's just going to take us right into the election season. And let me tell you something. If you're a student out there listening to this, do not believe this guy. He's a political hack. He's not going to be able to get a workaround on this. And the only reason he's saying this is that he wants your vote in 2024. Now, let me talk about the two religious uh, decisions. And uh, the first one has to do with uh, a woman that created websites that promoted weddings. And she's a Christian. And she had, I guess, a lesbian couple or a transvestite couple or whoever wanted to get married. And they wanted her to help them with a, her, their website that promoted their wedding. And she refused. And the case meandered its way into the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decision was that this woman did not have to help them pr- uh, create a website that was going to promote their gay marriage. And apparently it's protected under free speech, and which protects religion. And religion is protected under free speech, according to the decision today. And the second one has to do with a United States postal worker who didn't want to work on Sundays. He was an evangelical Christian that did not want to work on Sundays. And the United States Postal Service gave him a hard time. And again, this case meandered its way into the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, hey, look, he's got every right not to want to work on Sunday. And you have to accommodate him. And he won. So you've got free speech issues. You've got religious issues that will be helpful in pushing back against these ESG programs, and these DEI programs that are running through corporations. I think I mentioned it before, but it's going to take time. But these are really good decisions today that will help us do this. Now, I want to talk a few minutes about Hunter Biden's plea deal. And if there's ever an example of a two-tiered system, we're witnessing it right now. But I want to start off with one of the issues that the mainstream media is missing or hasn't talked about. And I thought it was kind of odd that all they wanted to talk about was the IRS portion of the plea. They didn't want to talk about the gun charge. And I thought that was odd. If they did talk about the gun charge, it was just lip service. And you know why they didn't want to talk about it? Because the gun charge, the fact that Hunter Biden, the son of the president, got off on a felony gun charge is just glaring, in particular to African-Americans. And the reason they didn't cover this in the mainstream media is they really didn't want to tick off the Democratic base or part of the Democratic base that's important to them, African-Americans. And there are so many African-Americans that are in jail under similar circumstances. But the mainstream media didn't want to talk about it because it raises the issue for African-Americans. 
And with that said, I wanted to go to a clip. It's with uh, Representative Wesley Hunt, an African-American representative from Texas. And let's go to the clip. And he hits the nail on the head about this gun plea, how it's a clear example of a two-tier system, particularly if you're African-American. So let's go to the clip, and then we'll come back and discuss. Biden will likely serve no jail time for these offenses, and, and yet... There was no early morning SWAT raid on Hunter's home in coordination with the media either. The American people are sick and tired of this two-tiered justice system. And as a black man, I'm tired of seeing this kind of discretion used to favor people like Hunter Biden because he's white and a son of a president. While Hunter Biden will serve no jail time for these charges, black men across this country are in prison for years for the exact same crimes. And I'm not surprised. So since Hunter's plea deal, a number of things have come out from the whistleblowers. And one of the items is that David Weiss, the uh, attorney general in charge of the investigation, had gone to Merrick Garland, said he wanted a special prosecutor. And I believe on another occasion, he had asked for the case to be moved. And Garland denied it. Now, this contrasts with Garland's testimony before Congress where he said that he's not interfering with this. And Weiss has full reign over how he wants to handle this. And the DOJ will not interfere with the investigation. Well, that seems to be a lie. Now, additionally, the whistleblowers had stated that the DOJ slow-walked the case to the benefit of Hunter Biden. Now, I think this likely has something to do with the fact that so as part of the plea deal... Hunter pled guilty to not paying taxes on $1.5 million, whereas because it was slow walked and because there are certain statute of limitations and certain dollar amounts, the actual amount was $8.5 million he did not pay taxes on. That's problematic. Now, the one thing I just think is just totally glaring is... It has to do with the 10% for the big guy memo. And it was about the email where Hunter Biden and his business partners were discussing their agreement with the, with a Chinese energy company and how they were going to divvy up the proceeds of their revenues that came in. And it came up that 10% was going to the big guy. And one of the lead attorneys, Leslie Wolf, put the kibosh on it. During the meeting where they were discussing this email, she interjected and said she did not want to ask about the big guy or dad. So there's a lot there. So you're not telling me that there's a two-tiered system here? Now, one thing that has to happen is I think uh, sometime in early July, a judge has to approve the plea deal, the plea bargain. And if she has any guts or he has any guts, he'll just put it on hold until this is further investigated because this is damning evidence for the Department of Justice, for Merrick Garland, and for this whole plea deal. So we'll see what happens. It, uh, again, it's supposed to happen sometime in early July. And again, if this uh, judge had any guts, they would uh, hold off on it until further notice. So we shall see. Now, Joe Biden isn't off the hook here. Because what also came out are some text messages or WhatsApp messages 
that Hunter sent to a Chinese energy executive, which essentially said that, I'm sitting here with my father. I want to know where our money is. And if I don't get the money, my father will use every connection he has to go after you. That's essentially what the gist of the email. But it's a shakedown. Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, they act like shakedown artists. Hunter's the bag man. Joe's the politician. And they work in tandem. And then there was another WhatsApp message that said, oh, the Biden family knows how to keep the Chinese happy. And this is not verbatim. I'm just synthesizing it for you. And I think it's been confirmed that Hunter Biden was in the Delaware House where Joe was when these messages were sent out. So how can you not say that Joe Biden knew nothing about this? He's just lying. And we know he's lying. We know he's corrupt. But we got to get the message out there to the independent voters. And that's why it's good that we have Tucker Carlson out there because there's a number of independent and Democratic voters that watch him. And we also get got to get the likes of Byron Donalds getting on CNN, going to MSNBC, and getting that message out there. Because we know he's corrupt, but this election's going to be based on what the independents say. Because I still think it's going to be a close race because the Democrats are going to pull out their vote. It's just a question of what the independents are going to do. And whether certain Democratic voters had enough of Joe. So we shall see. Now, speaking of the Democrats getting out their vote, I'm going to read an article. And I'm going to fill in the blanks later. So let me just read this article. It's from NewJersey.com. And the headline in the article says, Ex-manager of New Jersey Housing Authority funneled Section 8 funds to family member." says here, the ex-manager of the City of Camden Housing Authority admitted Wednesday that she gave Section 8 funds to family members, who is a landlord, and to a real estate company she established and controlled, authorities said. Tracy Willis, 55, of Mount Laurel, was the director of the Camden Housing Authority's Housing Choice Voucher Program from 2000 to 2019, a role in which she oversaw and approved the distribution of Section 8 funds to city landlords and property management companies, according to a statement from the New Jersey Attorney General's office. The funds are designed to subsidize the rent of low-income tenants. Willis directed tens of thousands of dollars in the funding to a relative who was a landlord in Camden, as well as a limited liability company she founded in 2015 and later shared with that family member, the office said. Now, the reason I'm bringing this article up is because the Democrats cheat, particularly in the urban areas. It has nothing to do with black people or white people. This is the Democrats cheating in urban areas. And what they do is these heads of housing authorities, these uh, heads of senior citizen centers, public senior citizen centers, these people that manage low-income housing units, even affordable housing units in some cases. They coordinate with the local Democratic Party to gather these ballots, coordinate with the local Democratic Party for new registrations. They need an address. So a lot of times these people that are in charge of these housing authorities and these senior centers, they find them addresses in their units that they're in charge of. Whether or not they live there, they don't care. 
These are just dummy addresses that they use. And then what they do is they go up and down and they knock on people's doors saying, hey, look, I did you a favor. I got you some housing here. You got to vote for the way I want you to vote or I'm going to throw you out. And these poor people, know they don't know any better. They're just afraid. So they I'll oh, do what you want. I'll take these extra ballots that are mailed in. I'll give them to you when they come in. Or they don't even have to go that far. All they have to do is to work with the uh, local, local post office and say, hey, look, all these ballots that come and give them to my office. I'll take care of the rest. And that's how they cheat. These low-income housing units, they are part of the big cheat in these urban areas. And that's why I'm saying this. And there's light. Their eyes lit up in 2020 when everybody got a mail-in ballot, whether you live there or not. And this is all co- coordinated. It's part of the democratic machine. And while we're on the topic of New Jersey, I just want to read an article. It has to do with uh, the governor here, Phil Murphy. Above my pay grade, Murphy. And I'll take you back to, I think it was an interview we had at CNBC. And it was during the lockdowns and it was during COVID. And they asked him about the lockdowns and whether what they were doing is constitutional or legal. And his answer was, well, that's above my pay grade. You're the governor of New Jersey. You should care about the Constitution. You should care about the law. But this is what the Democrats are all about. So let me read this article. And it says here, this is from Fox News. It says, New Jersey parents call out Governor Murphy after the state sues their schools. He's suing our taxpayers. New Jersey parents vow to fight after state sues school districts for bolstering parental rights. It says, New Jersey parents are threatening to take on state leadership after Governor Phil Murphy's administration filed a lawsuit against their school district for bolstering parental rights. He's suing the taxpayers. He's suing the people who don't agree with him. It's a political agenda, Brian Mason, a father of seven, told Fox News Digital. People are worried about the cost of the lawsuit. But what about when I sue Middletown because a guy goes into the locker room with my daughter? Three New Jersey districts, Middletown, Marlboro, and Manalapan, Englishtown Regional, are all being sued by the state for adopting similar policies which require teachers and administrators to alert parents if their child begins using a different name, pronoun, or a bathroom that contradicts their sex. The policies were approved by each district's Board of Education last Tuesday. Just 24 hours later, New Jersey Attorney General Matt Platkin filed three emergency lawsuits claiming the districts were endangering the safety of transgender students by enacting the policies. Isn't that great? You're a school district that wants to protect your children, and you're being sued by an administration whose governor doesn't respect the Constitution, doesn't respect the law. And it's called lawfare. They're just going to make these school districts expend and expend and expend money and try to outspend the state. Is this what we want in Trenton? Is this what we want in Washington? Are these the type of leaders that we want? They don't work for the people. They work for a small select cabal. So we shall see what happens with this one. Okay, we're halfway through the year, and I just wanted to talk about the stock market. And I haven't talked about the stock market 
in a number of episodes, but we're at mid-year, and quite frankly, I have never seen the stock market act like a used car salesman. And market's been up, all three indexes are up for the year, but it's all a bait-and-switch game that's going on. In the early part of the year, the market was driven up by all these talking heads saying, well, the, the Fed's going to have to cut. Fed's going to have to cut eventually during the year. And what happens when, if the Fed cuts rates, market should go up. Market likes lower rates. And they were all saying in the early part of the year, oh, no, the Fed is going to have, I guarantee that Fed's going to cut rates by the end of the year. And that drove the market up. And we had two rate cuts baked into the market. And when that started to fizzle out, artificial intelligence came in. AI. That's the new thing. We got to get on to AI. AI is the next great thing. So stocks like NVIDIA went through the roof. And anything associated with AI or what they thought would benefit from AI ran through the roof. But nobody really knows what AI is. Nobody really knows how AI is going to be monetized and which companies are going to benefit from it. But anything associated with AI or what, or what they thought was associated with AI was just driving the market up. And now the new talk is, well, maybe there won't be a recession this year. Maybe, they, uh, maybe there'll be a recession next year or later. Next year. Maybe there won't be a recession. They call it a soft landing. And that's driving the market up. But my question to the stock market is that if we already had two rate cuts baked in earlier in the year, most of the talking heads out there saying, oh, there may not be a, a recession. Well, that's got to affect stocks on the downside. And why is that not happening? Because they're ignoring everybody and they're just doing what they want. And that's what's scary. It's bait and switch. Look at this shiny object, not, this shi uh, not the shiny object that I told you two months ago. And it's so bad that there was an economist out there that's saying, so the market really isn't rational. It's more opportunistic. I, I want to put my money in something that's just an opportunist without being rational. The whole underlying confidence that I have in the stock market is that, is that it acts rationally. Now, I heard that, you know, look, there's moments of herd mentality, but this is bizarre. This is absolutely bizarre what's going on in the market. And then what adds to this confusion is the government math experts that calculated the D GDP for the first quarter. Initially, it came out at 1.3%. Then it was revised upward to 2%. That's a massive revision. Who's ending the numbers in Washington? We've got an accounting error in Ukraine to the total of $6 billion. We've got a massive adjustment to our GDP in the first quarter of this year from one3 to 2%. Who's counting the numbers? They got to get their act together, both the market and the bean counters. And it worries me because I don't think anybody knows what's going on. No one has a clue. We've never gone through this. They're now treating the stock market like a used car lot. And at some point we're going to suffer, or at least the stock market's going to suffer because there's been a disconnect between the stock market and the, under, uh, the underlying American economy, which took place years ago. But I'm not a financial advisor, but be careful. And with that said, thank you so much for listening. You have a good week, and I'll talk to you next Saturday.